Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here at The Next Reel, we've been passionately discussing movies week after week since 2011. That's a lot of movies and a lot of conversation. Sure is, Pete. And to be honest, it's a lot of work, too. But it's work that we love. If you've been enjoying our show, we'd like to remind you that there are ways to support us, even if you're not able to become a member just yet. You might have heard us talk about our new watch page, where we've listed every movie that we've talked about paired with Amazon or Apple links to rent or buy the movie. Now we'd like to introduce you to our Originals page. Let's take a trip down memory lane, Andy. Do you remember what the first film we discussed on The Next Reel was that was an adaptation? Uh, well, let's see. It wasn't, obviously, our Indiana Jones series, because those were all original. Uh, then we did Charlie Kaufman. Uh, oh, of course, it was Adaptation uh, from Susan Orlean's Orchid Thief. Exactly. We have covered quite a few adaptations over the years, and now we're providing a way for our listeners to delve into the original source material. That's right. Just head over to thenextreel.com slash originals, and you can see the list of all the adaptations that we have discussed. From our David Fincher series, featuring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. To our Paranoia trilogy with The Parallax View and All the President's Men. We have covered a variety of adaptations. Those were some great discussions, especially Fight Club. And let's not forget our baseball series with The Natural and Field of Dreams, adapted from Shoeless Joe. And Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking. So many memorable conversations. Absolutely. And you know what's exciting? Each purchase you make through our links doesn't cost you any extra, but a percentage goes to support the next reel in our family of shows. You can support us while diving deeper into these fantastic stories, whether it's the paper, audiobook, or Kindle version. We've also included plays and movies. If they were the source, we've put it on there. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals, support the next reel, and get your next great read today. I'm off to reread Fight Club. Now, where did I put my Kindle? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. So you know what's interesting about Panic Room? We're just going to do it. We're just going to jump right in. We don't have to. No, I mean, we, that's good. I, but I got to do, I got to make the announcement first. I got to do the thing. You know, that we have the usual rigmarole. We got to do the rigmarole. Okay, you you do the rigmarole, right. and you get then your notes. I'll you figure out I, your notes. At least everyone knows what, what that there's something exciting about Panic Room that's coming. <laughs> yeah, that was a we call <laughs> that in the business a, a teaser. That was a tease. Yes, it was. It was nothing but pure tease. <laughs> okay, uh, so the the uh, rigmarole is uh, first of all uh, we are on Stitcher. You got You got to check out the show on Stitcher. It is uh, it's fantastic. You can listen to it on your uh, iPhone, iPad, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and more on demand on the go. Stitcher is uh, smart radio. They call it uh, smart radio for your phone. You can find it in your appropriate app store of choice or at Stitcher.com. Uh, it is the smarter way to listen to radio. So you should check it out. And I'll tell you, Stitcher for us is doing quite well. Turns out, it turns out there are quite a few people who like the Stitcher. And now it's it's uh, between Stitcher and iTunes. Uh, that's where most of the people are finding us. Well, and it makes you feel very technologically advanced if you're using Stitcher. It's cutting edge. It is pretty. It's well. It's it is fancy. It's technologically fancy. Mm-hmm. Is the thing. So definitely do that, and you can uh, always make sure that you follow uh, the the brilliant uh, Andy Nelson at uh, the Movie Monkey on Twitter, mm-hmm. and uh, you can find me at Pete Wright on the Twitter. And um, so you I'm even do that. trying to start using my Twitter, <laughs> which is good because it's a good thing to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I figured I should since you keep plugging it. I'm, I'm gonna like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna keep. Have to, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna have make to you use that. Twitter thing now. I'm gonna make you useful <laughs> online. That's my that's my goal. That's why we do this whole that's thing. Why just... we do this to make you relevant <laughs> online. <laughs> All right. So now, well, thank uh, you for that. You're very welcome. You're you're. I've been very... feeling so irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, you know. Let's talk about. Uh, let's talk about Panic Room. So we're we're in the middle. We we're in. We're really in the middle of uh of our are uh, yeah of our inverted uh our benjamin button fincher fest if this were a uh a a week this would be what we would call hump day (laughs) if we were uh, if we were on our journey uh from the shire to mordor would we be at carhadras (laughs) i think we would be past that i think we would be uh, maybe at, <laughs> yeah, with the riders of Rohan. We would at, be on the plains of Rohan. <laughs> yes. See that that uh, man, that's deep. It is. That's... It really puts things in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is uh, this movie. Mm. I I actually was able to get my wife to watch this movie with me. It was not a comfortable thing. We had to do it in uh, thirty minute increments over four days. Oh, well, that's always fun. Because it got, and then we had to watch immediately after. We had to watch the uh, the new girl. The new girl. Have you seen? Oh, the is show? that no Zoe, no? Zoe Deschanel. Deschanel, no. Deschanel. She's she. I have a oh, man. I have a crush on that show. She's, uh, a, you know, it's funny. No, it's a funny thing. I, it's a short-term crush. I can feel it's just sort of a short-term crush because, uh, you know, I watched like five episodes. I, you know, it's a, it's a half-hour sitcom, so you get 21 minutes and, and you're done. So I watched like five episodes of it uh, the other night, and, and it's, it's funny. It's Three's Company inverted, right? Only uh, Zoe's character is just a little bit more... Um, affected than jack tripper like she's not right there's she's just not well there's something not like socially not well she's she's spectrumy like she's just she's kind of like me in a social situation it's very awkward like so awkward that you feel like there's something wrong so maybe the new girl means in the world of reincarnates she is a new being, so she's still fleshing out how to actually yeah, how to live sh- properly. Show show's not that smart. You just <laughs> you you just went way smarter than the show. But it is it is really funny. It's I find myself la- it's like laugh out loud funny. You it's like you know you forget immediately what you were laughing about mm-hmm. uh, right yeah. after it's over. But it's it's really worth the laugh in the moment. Oh okay. Well, so that's what we watched. We watched we watched Panic Room for a half hour and then. The new girl. It was. A, it ended up being a good combination. Very odd combination, but uh, no, it was good. So, so the uh, so let's talk about Panic Room. So I I, I had a teaser at the beginning. Yeah, what? Something, tell me about something it. very interesting about the film that I think defines, I guess, maybe what the writer and in turn the director David Fincher was aiming for with this film. The script for Panic Room, written by David Kep, um, right at the top of page one, he wrote, this film is short, this film is fast. Hmm. As a defining sense of what a reader for the script should picture as they, uh, as they read the script, and in turn, kind of what uh, a director would you know, aim for when making the film. I'm not quite sure it turned into something that could qualify as a short or fast film. Um, however, maybe in in David Fincher's world, it is. <laughs> well, it. I mean, it's a sh- it's a shorter film just in in raw duration than the others, right? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, but 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 it seems it's it's almost the most. Uh, sort of systematic, right? I mean, it's it's really like you can sort of feel as you as you're watching it, you really feel where uh, there there are real discrete breaks in the dramatic uh, in in the story arc of this film. Mm-hmm. There, there's the move in. There's they're in the panic room. We meet all the characters. There's the panic room switch, and uh, you know, in the last act, there's the the resolution and the gore, the horrible horrible living room slaughter <laughs> right i mean it's just very for for really was it was so easy to watch in in break it was like watching a serial sure 
Uh, David well, Kep. It is. It is divided. It, it's divided very perfectly into the three acts. You know, which essentially is what you're saying. You right, know, first, right. first, first act is, I guess you could say, the invasion leading to them entering the panic room. Right. Second room is all of them. Uh, all of the scenes with um, Jodie Foster's character Meg right. and daughter Sarah in, in the, the panic room, and then Act Three begins with when when she and the robbers essentially switch places right. and she has to figure out now how to get into the panic room to save her daughter. So you like this movie a lot. I do. It's not um my favorite of Fincher's movies. It was seems like it was cursed. It does <laughs> seem like it was cursed. Oh man, this this film. You know, I it's funny cuz uh Going back to what I was saying about David Kep writing this script, he wrote this on spec, which means he didn't get paid to write it. He just kind of came up with the idea, wanted to write it, and and did. And then, once it was written, he went and pitched it to the studios and, and found a buyer, basically. Um, but he was always intending a very lean script and a very lean film it all took place in one location. Uh, very like he really wrote this specifically um, with brevity in mind. Um, David Fincher just finished up Fight Club, which you know, for all intents and purposes, was shot all over the place. There was, I, I think, it said like at least 150 locations that they went to to shoot that film. That's a very busy film all over the place. And he really wanted to shoot something that felt smaller. Um, of course, in David Fincher's mind, something that feels smaller can very easily turn into something that's incredibly complicated, which this one did. Which is exactly what I was going to say. I mean, you, you, you look at what the intent, the scripted intent was of Kep's uh, original manuscript, original script, and you look at what actually became of this one, quote, location, uh, and and you end up sort of pulling apart the fact that they really it's it's like they didn't really talk, David Kep and David Fincher, right? Like, they didn't they didn't really talk. Oh, you know, this ended up being a significant special effects scene, uh, special effects film to get to get the these shots that that Fincher orchestrated. Uh, yeah, and to his credit, I mean, he really did some amazing things. And the thing amazing about amazing things. Yeah. The thing about Fincher is that he um, is a very meticulous filmmaker who really thinks about what he's doing with his films. And in this particular one, he wanted the camera to essentially not be connected with any particular character. Oftentimes you'll find the, char the camera kind of more connected to the protagonist as it goes through the film. In this one, he very specifically designed it where the camera almost was a... Um, lifeless entity that just kind of moved through the house showing us whatever we happened to need to be shown. Well, yeah, you know, I would, I would actually, I would, uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about the camera's role and, and I think, I think you're right, but I think the camera actually was, uh, quite intimately connected to the house as a living kind of organism. True. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that you could say that. I mean, if there's ever a film where, where the physical location took a character part, uh, took, took on a, a role, a dramatic role in the film, this is that, that film. I mean, the, yeah. house, the house was an active participant. Well, 
I don't know if I'd say active. It's not like it's a haunted house with, you know, no, it's not. But but, but the way the way we the way we are able to exist in the house and I and I think it's, you know, the the way we exist and move from the organic floating camera. Right. That the the camera that goes through floors and walls and through the handle of the coffee pot and and, you know, that camera and the security camera, which is very much part of the sort of nervous system of the house. You feel like you're in the camera's sort of eyes and you yeah. can you you know, you're in the house's eyes. You can see what it sees and hear what it hears. And um, and everyone else just sort of exists kind of running around. And it. it's like the house is infected. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's very interesting. It's an interesting way of looking at it. It's um, it is a very kind of haunting way to kind of feel as you move around the house. It's kind of disconnected, but you're right. It's it's as if we are the house, kind of watching everything happen. It's a pretty interesting way to tell the story. It, should, um, it is. I I feel like I interrupted you. I'm sorry. I did that. No, 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 you no, were, no, no. Don't you were no. on a roll. No, it's fine. But just the way that they moved the camera, um, it's it never feels as if you know people are moving the camera, and that's specifically done with motion control cameras, where they basically program all the moves on a, a you know a motorized dolly that moves everything, and then basically it does all the moves for you, and it's completely fluid. There's no bumps. There's no you know, wiggles as it's moving it like there would be in other films with dollies. As smooth as a dolly operator can operate, inevitably there's going to be minor variations. In this one, it's all just 100% fluid, flawless movement. And in order, in order to achieve that, aside from building this entire, you know, four-story house on a stage, they designed it in such a way where they could essentially move uh, out whatever walls or or house elements they needed to in order to make these shots happen. And what that often meant is, you know, David Fincher could put the camera essentially anywhere he wanted to. Um, and then what they would do, if they had to remove a wall and a banister or a door frame or whatever, they would just remove all of that, get the shot that they needed, and then digitally in post, they would go back in there and add the wall, the banister, the door frame, all back into the shot. And it creates this feel where, where literally we're moving, like he could move anywhere in that house that he wanted to. I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating way to make a film. Do you have any sense, or did in, did you uncover anywhere the the overall number of special effects shots? Like the I I'm specifically talking to the CG shots mm -hmm. uh, as uh, a, in this film. I I'm sure it was mentioned. Um, it was a lot more than I believe they ever anticipated. However, well, that was my thing about the script. Like I, you know, that's I just ha after seeing this movie again and looking at it a little more critically, I had this voice in my head of David Fincher saying, "Oh, I love this script. Now I'm going to way overcomplicate it now." And it was <laughs> well, yeah, right. No kidding. It, it in different hands, this could very easily have been done on a very low budget by an independent filmmaker. It could be done yeah. in a very lean way for probably under you know ten million dollars. And it could just be streamlined, fast, brief. You just move in, move out, get it done. That's totally doable. It could be an hour and a half, um, and there you go. Right. With with Fincher, he did purposefully 
make decisions that that um, that gave it this feel that we've been talking about. And what that meant is it did create a lot more complications in post as far as making all these CG shots work. That being said, they also used a tool um, called pre-visualization or previs, where essentially it's like digital storyboards. And they can they had essentially blueprints of the house in their computer. And this they was could, now, this digital previs, this was pretty new when this movie it was coming it was, out in 2002. Yeah, it was pretty new. It was pretty new. Um, it had been used before. Right. Um, I think this was probably one of the times where it was um, a lot more advanced. Um, I do recall even going back all the way to, well, no, I, I guess that was more just digital storyboarding. It wasn't previs so much. This is essentially creating an environment and you can make little characters like it looks like very bad computer work done by <laughs> you know like an elementary school kid right. it's kind of kind of the look of these characters as they move through the environment but you can move the characters however you want and then you can position the camera where you want the camera to be what what lens you think it would be um you know what the framing is and essentially all of the complicated shots, he did these previs um, computer renders of how he felt the shot should be so that even though they were making it complicated by having to do all this digital work in post, the production was um, streamlined to a point where they knew weeks before any actor ever stepped on set, they knew exactly where the camera was going to be for that day, what the shots were going to be. They could tell the actor... Yes, you're in the sh the shots today, but all we're going to see are your feet, so the actor didn't have to worry. You know, everything was was very fine tuned, making the actual production really much more systematic. Than um, I wonder, uh, you know, I wonder if we could look at a delta of the overall production time, just how much time is saved through digital previs on a film like this. Time was saved. <laughs> that being said, they still spent six months shooting this film. So, yeah. so yes, time was saved, but it still took a lot longer than they'd planned. You know, technical issues, camera problems, actor problems. Uh, there were just a lot of issues on this film that led to it running for six months. Wow. Well, the, we t mentioned that this film was, was sort of cursed to begin with. Um, you know, it's it's hard to read about the film without uh, seeing a, a sentence like you know some very simple algebra. You know, uh, Fincher originally was working with X, and early in production, that person dropped out, was fired, had a knee injury, got frustrated, yeah. and left. I mean, it, it happens many many times to the point where Fincher originally went to the studios and said. Uh, to Columbia and said, I think you should just take the insurance money. We got to yeah. shelve it. This is not working. And the studio said, no, you got to make a movie. Yeah. Well, they were pushing up against a, uh, a writer's guild strike. And so it was one of those things where they were getting nervous when things kept happening um, that, you know, the studio had to make a decision. Do we, do we just kill the project and, and eat the money that we've spent or do we push through it? and try to get it done before the Writers Guild strike happens. They opted to push through it. And, you know, it still worked. They were able to get it all done, and it all worked. Um, but it's it certainly had its complications. Um, so 
I guess we should uh, rattle off the complications, huh? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I would start, I, I was trying to figure out where to start. I think the obvious ones are with casting, but I, I wanted to start with, uh, with Darius Kanji. Is that how you pronounce his name? Kongi. Yeah. Dar- Darius Kanji. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, <clears throat> he shot seven. He was the director of photography or cinematographer. Mm-hmm for David Fincher on Seven and just did a beautiful job with that film. That's a gorgeous film. Yeah. And in this film, because of the previs that Fincher had already been doing and the way that they had been building the set and planning it all, uh, Darius came into the film feeling that a lot of decisions that he felt he should have been a part of, he felt that the decisions were already made. And, uh, you know, I think he was a little miffed about that. And, you know, he was... Not too happy. I, I don't think it destroyed the relationship between him and, and uh, Fincher. Fincher's said, you know, he's he's waiting for the right project to work with Kanji again, um, you know, where they can, where he can, you know, find the right project for him. Um, hasn't happened yet, but I certainly hope they work together because I, I love Darius Kanji's films. He, he actually just shot uh, Midnight in Paris with Woody Allen. Which was fantastic. And it looked beautiful. It I mean, was gorgeous. I, it, it was totally beautiful. fell in love with Paris um, in all the different ages. Watching that film it was just a stunning film. It was a stunning film. Uh, it, okay, but, so there's but yeah. So 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 he ended up leaving very early on. I don't think he shot anything. I think it was still while they were right. Um, maybe they had started shooting. I, I I'm not quite sure. It's not clear. But regardless, Conrad w hall came in and uh and replaced him on this uh, one well and and i think you're right i from what, the way i understand in reading up on it he did they did not actually start shooting anything and and conrad hall came in um but I, I, you know it seems relevant to me given what we've already discussed in fincher's sort of bent to create a and work with a team as he moves forward you know and 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 later films you see that team really sort of has changed and then solidifies again uh, and he works with the same people over and over and over again and so it it feels like a significant thing when you know Darius Kanji who had done such terrific work on 7 leaves so early in the process so yeah, that right. uh, that that one seemed you know from a human resources perspective that seems like a tough one um it does and but you know at least Fincher had worked a little bit with Conrad Hall right, uh, right junior before um he was he did some work on fight club he wasn't the dp on fight club but he had uh been doing i believe some second unit camera work on that film so at least they had known each other and and you know he was still putting his faith in somebody that he'd worked with before although he doesn't he just doesn't have the the, and he he didn't i mean you know panic room i think was his high point the high water mark on conrad hall's but, you know, I mean, American Beauty, maybe. Well, I don't know if he... Uh, he didn't actually. He beauty. wasn't it was principal. It was his dad. But, he, you know, yeah. he worked on it. But, you know, The Punisher, uh, two for the money. Yeah. He's he's done some bigger movies. He's has done, he really? He's done, yeah, he has done... Um, gosh, what has he done? Because uh, he's been... He really has taken off uh, kind of since his father passed away. Um, let me look and see what else he's done. Well, while you do that, uh, let's look at uh, let's look at some casting issues. The original cast uh, included Nicole Kidman as mm-hmm. Meg Altman to the point where um, Nicole Kidman was actually shooting, uh, but had to drop out 
due to a knee injury that she had sustained apparently on Moulin Rouge, and she couldn't uh, she couldn't finish the film. No, yeah, not only did she sustain that injury on Moulin Rouge, blew out her knee um, on Panic Room. Her other knee started bothering her, and her doctor said you can finish the movie you just can't go up any stairs stairs, right (laughs) (laughs) in a film that takes place in a four-story house (laughs) yeah lots of running lots of barreling up and down stairs not not a good match for nicole kidman so jodie foster comes in with a very short uh, prep time to get this to to jump into the role and yeah essentially less than a week i mean it's crazy short uh, and and as a, you know, what did you what, what do you think of of uh, Jodie Foster's performance in this film generally? Oh, I, I loved it. I I think it's a just a fantastic performance. Um, it, and but you know, as they say, as Fincher says, as David Kep says, as everyone involved said, it it changed the script because it's hard putting somebody like Jodie Foster into a role previously inhabited by Nicole Kidman. They can equally make as great a film, but they're kind of a different personality. And so you they they did have to kind of tweak the script a little bit in order to fit Jodie Foster a little better than Nicole Kidman. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think Jodie Foster's performance is really, um, you know, best characterized by her, uh, by the way she works with. Uh, in the end, her daughter, Sarah Altman, played by uh, Kristen Stewart, who was also a replacement for Hayden Panettiere. Uh, now, Hayden, uh, you know, she's been in a bunch of stuff. She's most, uh, I, I think she's probably best known for her role in Heroes. Yeah, Save the Cheerleader, uh, Save the World. Save the Cheerleader, Save the World. Uh, and she was swapped out after only 19 days of shooting because... Fincher, quote, found her irritating. And not her irritating, at least what what they talk about on the commentary. He didn't name her in the commentary. But what he says is he he felt her cuteness was a little irritating. He just he just didn't feel that it was the right sort of um, look to be playing that role. Yeah. I'm glad I, I'm I'm glad you said that. I had a feeling that that was it. You know, sometimes you get these quotes and they're taken totally out of context. And yeah, uh, because I, you know, I think Hayden Pantier does a if if not slightly overwrought, she does she does good work. She's yeah, look a, at her in racing stripes. <laughs> okay, really. <laughs> uh, now that said, back to Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart as a mother daughter pair were perfect. Yeah, it's funny because Kristen Stewart was was brought in before the Nicole Jody swap, and then when Jody was brought in, everybody was looking at them like, "Oh my God, it's like it's like Jody and Mini Jody." It's like they everyone's like, "It's it's exactly what Jody's daughter would look exactly. like." Exactly, it it's unreal, frightening. Yeah, it was when a you perfect see them, it, it's even it's it's not even so much with in the beginning, uh, you know, when she's riding the scooter around the house, but at the end when her head is on Jodie Foster's lap and she's reading the newspaper, and it's like Jodie Foster is cradling herself. Mm-hmm. It, it was unreal. Yeah, it's great casting. Really perfect. I mean, just dumb luck casting, uh, you know, on short notice oh, after know. those switches. I mean, to end up with that kind of a match, it was just perfect. And you know what's interesting about Jodie Foster is. Um, Fincher had been talking to her. They'd been talking to, to each other about working together 
um, ever since the game, actually, because um, Fincher was a little um, unsure about the script for the game as far as Michael Douglas's character and his brother, played by Sean Penn, he had a hard time kind of identifying with that brother relationship and wanted to make it a sister and it was a younger sister. And he was going to cast Jodie Foster as the sister. Um, it didn't end up happening. Um, and honestly, I think the film actually works well the way it is. But um, but that's where they started talking. So it was nice that they finally had an opportunity to work together. They did a a terrific, a terrific job on that relationship. Now, the. Uh, you know, the criminals. Wait, wait, before what? we jump into the criminals. Oh, okay. Uh, let me finish about Nicole Kidman. Okay. The great, the great thing about her is, you know, obviously she had to leave because of injuries. There was, there was no resentment. There was, there was no problem with it. And the great thing was, is she called the touch base at some point later and, uh, was chatting with, with David Fincher who said, Hey, you know what? I have this little tiny role. Uh, it's just on the phone. It's it's Stephen's girlfriend. Stephen is uh, Jodie Foster's character's um, new new love. It, well, it's her. Jodie Foster's it's her, it's her, her husband's new love. Yeah, right. And so so yeah, this girlfriend on the phone that you only hear like three lines from actually ends up getting played by Nicole Kidman. That's so funny. Which was it's it's great. It's yeah. and just one of those little kind of throwaway. And it's, it's it's totally uncredited. To right. Yeah. It is. It's, it's just wonderful. great to know though. Um, so, um, all right. so anyway, you're going to go into the, uh, well, um, if, you know, the, the trio, um, yeah. Burnham Jr. and Raul, 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 Dwight, you got start with Dwight Yoakam because really Dwight Yoakam is awesome. He is so awesome. He's Dwight great. Yoakam is so all, all scary. Of, all of them are great, but yeah, Dwight Yoakam is just terrifying. Oh, and man. I think a lot of it, what makes it so terrifying is that he's wearing his, ski mask like for, for most of the 90 percent of the film and <laughs> it just he's... becomes this fascinating character and you know everybody uh uh david kep and fincher both apologized to dwight you know uh as an actor coming on and finding out you're going to be wearing a mask for the majority of your role is kind of difficult but it actually i think he ended up enjoying it and it's a uh, it's such a great role and it's such a dark role. Oh, it it's really so is. dark. It's so dark. You you it's funny because, you know, that the way the uh, Okay, so Dwight Yoakam is Raul, Jared Leto as uh Junior, mm -hmm. and Forrest Whitaker as Burnham. What's great about Jared Leto in this role, um, because he had worked with Fincher on Fight Club. Right. Um, he came in and um and Fincher had cast him. And uh, Jared Leto called Fincher up one day. He's like, I'm coming over. I got to show you something. Um, I, you know, I'm going to give you, I, I want to give you a chance to talk me out of it. Otherwise, I think that I, I, this is how I see the character. And he comes over and he had his hair all cornrowed like it is in the film. Right, right. Um, he, he and this girl he was hanging out with were down at the beach or something. And he, he just decided to do it on a total whim. He's like, I think this is the character. I, I totally want to do this. Now's your chance to tell me if you think it's it's a bad idea and I'll undo it. But otherwise, I want to go for it. And, and Fincher was just like, you know, that totally seems like the sort of thing that this little rich kid who's trying to, you know, be, you know, kind of all dark and tough. It seems like the sort of thing that he would try to do. So uh, I loved it. I love so much. <laughs> That's really funny. I could sort of see Jared Leto as a as a person kind of feeling like cornrows would be a great idea. 
It yeah. ends up really working for the character, but I just <laughs> I don't know the guy. What do I know? Yeah. But but the, what I find so interesting about the way these three guys play these three characters and what makes this as a ultimately kind of a heist movie, right? That that side of the that sort of side of the psyche of this film so interesting to me is that the the power structure changes between the three of them and rotates like every 15 minutes right mm-hmm. uh, each character does not get to play sort of their their get get to play their initial role for more than about 15 minutes jared leto comes in and he's all tough and he knows the plan and he's got the plan and then things get shaken up mm-hmm. and then you know forrest whitaker has is the brains of the of the operation and then things get shaken up and raul starts taking power with a gun uh, showing that he has a, he's brought a gun to this thing and and he has the power uh, and it keeps rotating as everything they try uh, ends up getting uh, ends up getting them more and more sort of hurt and the house more and more kind of demolished. Yeah, uh, it it is a fascinating dynamic that these guys played really well. It is, and it's uh, you know it's it's a it's great stuff and to see Forrest Whitaker who you know always carries just a great. Um, gravitas and just has this amazing presence and humanity, even when he's playing a a thief like he is here. Um, it, the, he brings so much to it, and those choices that he makes, where he 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 realizes toward the end, he's you know, it's just like you know, I've you know, I'm going to save these people, but I've made these choices, and no matter what, even though I'm going to save them, I'm still going to have to live with the decisions that I made. And, right. uh, you know, it, it's just good stuff. He's just, he's great at that sort of role. Well, and, and really great when tasked with being sort of the, the bad guy who discovers his own humanity kind of in the heart of the action. When he goes in during the swap, when he goes in and sees Kristen Stewart has, or Sarah Altman has, uh, has gone into her, uh, you know, her glute. gluten, not gluten, uh, diabetic, uh, diabetic coma, coma. Right. She's on her way on her. She's, on, she's on moving her way south. Into the coma, she's on right. her way. Yeah. Uh, and there's that, there's that look in his eyes that, that is where you just, you just get that he's totally stymied. He has mm-hmm. no idea what to do. And then Raul takes over, uh, and, and you see that, that sort of, uh, that sort of dynamic. Do you ever, do you ever run across the trailer? For a video game, is a video game of um, Dead Island. Mm-mm. It was, it was horrifying, and it was horrifying for me to watch as a. It's about a zombie game, right? It's a zombies running loose on a on a island, and um, y- you know, wh- whatever the 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 game I never actually played, but that and maybe i wouldn't have been affected by this you know 10 years ago but watching this trailer it's it starts with uh uh you're looking at you're zoomed very close into the iris uh of of a person and it very slowly zooms out and you realize this person is staring at you sideways as the camera tilts up and then the person lifts up off the ground you see it's a little girl and you suddenly see now that you're moving backwards through time and you see that this is a, a little girl who has been who is falling 
and you see shards of glass come into focus. So she, you get the view that she's sort of fallen out of a window and she goes up, 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 up. And suddenly she's in the window. And this whole thing is watching really from the perspective of this little girl being transformed into a zombie. But the dramatic story is of her parents trying to protect her from these crazed zombies that actually end up biting her, ripping her. And and you watch it all kind of unveil and kind of the story sort of unveil itself in reverse. Jeez. It is horrifying. And I I almost couldn't get through it. Uh, I don't know why I watched it. But I had that same feeling watching Panic Room, that sequence, when the daughter is in trouble. She's deeply in trouble, and the door closes on Dwight Yoakam's hand, and you realize that that's going to fuel his rage, and she is alone and totally helpless inside the panic room, and yeah. mom can't do anything about it. That affected me more now uh, than it did when I watched this movie the last time, which uh, I had not seen it since uh, since you know my daughter was born 10 years ago. It does make it hard as a parent to watch scenes like that when... Uh, yeah, it's like, you know, everything you do is about protecting your child. And like, it's amazing how that um, animal rage and that that protective instinct just totally kicks in with Jody and uh, or with Meg. And at that point, she'll do anything to save her daughter, even if it means letting them have everything they want. Right, right. Um, hey, I, I, I lost you a minute. You, you said, uh, she'll do anything to save her daughter, even if it means letting them have anything they want. And then did you go silent there? I, I muted cause I was coughing. Oh. I, had a cough, <laughs> I had a coughing fit. Sorry. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, no, but it is, um, that's that's what kind of switches her and and changes her as a character into somebody that now uses all of the devices that she can come up with in order to not just save her daughter which she does through getting Forrest you know appealing to his him to to give um Sarah the injection but also to do everything she can you know, keep the cop from coming into the house to help save her daughter, yet set up this whole elaborate trap to get these um, these last two remaining bad guys and to uh, to stop them from escaping, basically. So how do you feel about the resolution of the film, right? I, I, there, there are two points that, that sort of stick to me. The first one is when she's having the the conversation with the officers, uh, mm-hmm. Officer Kurlander and Keeney at the door, mm-hmm. and there is this great moment of really tight shots uh, on their faces, on Jodie Foster's face, and on uh, 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 is it uh, Ian Buchanan? I think, or no, it was uh, oh. uh, Kurlander uh, is the uh, the realtor. He's the real. I mean, uh, Paul Schultz. Yeah, Ke- Schultz. yeah, Paul Schultz, the the uh, officer, right? The officer, and when she's looking really close into his eyes. And he says, you know, you know, if there was something, for example, you could not say, like, for example, there are people in the house. And, for example, you could give us a signal like, you know, doing your eyes, blinking your eyes a few right. times, right? Yeah, and, and your eyes are just like... Yeah, blink, I'm blinking. I'm blinking. I, like I think everyone in the audience is like blinking for her. Come on, blink, blink, blink. 
she doesn't blink and she oh, has that so... fantastic sort of you guys are good you, yeah. this would be great if there were really a problem this would they train you well oh. and yet they still come back the cops yeah so we're to understand that they got the message from her anyway because uh, they bring SWAT team. I mean, they didn't just ring the doorbell. They come in with the SWAT team. Yeah, it's I like it. I, I bought it, Um, you know, from I, I don't know, maybe from his perspective, the whole thing seems kind of suspicious. And, and I don't know, I kind of bought into the fact that the cops would show up. I uh it just it felt right I guess okay. at the same at the same time well and also I liked the fact that it kind of tied up the story that was a great way to tie up the story with Burnham's character as he's trying to escape uh but unfortunately even though he helped uh protect Meg and Sarah from Raul he still has to pay for his crimes right. and so I, I like that as far as how the cops resolve that um I, I, they're, but I like that they didn't save the day. I like that Meg is still the one who has to um, fight against Raul and essentially try to take him down. Um, even though Burnham is the one who he's the one who ends up changing over the course of the story and and uh, makes the decision to save her. Yeah, you know, I think I think it ended, you know, it ended with a really solid resolution. Like I felt good about how how it ended, and yet it's only when I sort of get a few minutes out of the, you know, out of the end of the film. And I think back, you know what? She comes out of the elevator after it really feels like the situation is going to resolve itself. You know, and that's, that's a very good point. That's something that they definitely um, discuss in the, you know, the making of they, for all intents and purposes, it does feel like they're almost at the door They'll let Sarah go, and and Burnham and Raul will just escape into the night. However, um, you know, I don't. I think it boils down to that maternal instinct to protect your own, and she still feels that you know she has to fight to save, me, or to, she has to fight to save Sarah, right. and and so she takes Raul down. Oh, does she ever? Uh, so she takes him, Raul keeps, you know, Raul keeps kicking. Yeah. He, he doesn't want to quit. He doesn't want to quit. He comes back. Uh, Burnham obviously, uh, shoots him, saves the day. She ends up, uh, having that moment with her, with her daughter where she mouths, it's okay. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And only then does SWAT enter the, enter the house and yeah. catch Burnham. And there's this, there's this moment. There's another one of those moments. I think there's probably, this is a third one of those moments in the film where you really feel like, uh, like something's going to happen that doesn't right. The first one. Yeah, well, it, it's when Burnham is standing up on the edge and he's up on the ledge and he's holding on to the, to the Barabons that he's just 22 million in Barabons that he's just stolen. Mm -hmm. And at that point you really, you want him to sort of get away. I know he's the the antihero that you want to get away. You want him to get that money and do what he needs to do. For he's the only one who seems to have any sort of rational need for the money. You you sort of feel like there's a there's a family drive for him to to save his family, protect his family, and that's why he gets this money. And he he has it, and then he lets it go, and and you. At some point, I'm left thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to do something and get himself shot. Yeah. 
and he doesn't. Uh, and that almost says more about his character than than any of his other decisions, that he doesn't take the easy way out, and he lets go of the bear bonds. And it is just this brilliant, glistening wash of parchment and rain uh, all sort of backlit and burned out as it floats off into the into the air. It is a terrific uh, resolution, if not a release, for me. Hmm. I don't know. That's interesting. That's interesting. You know, I, it's like insofar as I I I'm glad that he is gonna, you know, I'm I'm sad for him more than glad for him to pay for his crime. I'm sad that he needs to. He's gonna take that as a, as a viewer. That was an that was a fantastic choice because it leaves me torn. It leaves me feeling something. In the script, he dies. Why? Why the change? I, I don't know. Maybe they wanted him to. Uh, they wanted him to live and pay for his crimes. Maybe because we like him, and maybe it was you know harder for the audience to see him die than it was to live and go to prison no i think it's harder to see him live yeah i mean why what do you think i mean you've got the script i mean did you feel like it resolved you know the thing about well the script's a little different though because i he's not in it to like get money for his family or anything like that he's in it because he's got gambling debts and and stuff like that. So he's, right. he he's wasn't not he just sort of the washed out white collar kind of. Yeah. And he's a little still more of a bum. He's just kind of a, you know, gambling debt bum and just needs the money to pay off these debts. So I don't think in the script it was one where you really felt that sorry for him when he died. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I like the fact that in the in the film, the way that it ends, you end up with this character that you feel. um you feel sorry for the fact that, you know, he ends up getting busted, but it doesn't let him, they don't let him get away with it because in some sense, getting killed, I think is also another way to kind of get away from things. Like he doesn't have to stand up and be responsible for what he's done. Well, and that's the whole point, right? Every decision he made in the movie, even has his character, his character arc changed. Mm-hmm. from being the bad guy the crook to the good guy the savior every one of his decisions was the the harder one right yeah. it was the harder one to go back and save the family and kill yeah. raul it was the harder one to turn around at the end and not get a get out scot free but to pay for yeah. what he had done it was the well, it was the harder decision i think that's what makes it such a rewarding um and emotional uh emotional feeling at the end of the film yeah i'm glad he didn't get get uh i'm glad he didn't get shot no yeah i am too it is it is it is tough but i i think that it's the right way to end it this uh what was that other movie that you liked that i hated because of the last one was uh the ghost rider oh right 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 yeah that's because why he... that's why i didn't like the last five seconds Wow, but see, I, no, you can, I, I like it because it's, you know, it's like, you know, after all of that that he goes through, he finds out who it is and, and she basically has him killed. And I, I just I thought that was great. It was a nice little twist at the end. Kick in the gut. That's what it was. It was. It definitely was. 
Okay, so Panic Room cost uh, cost them just under fifty million to make, and uh, looks like it made almost two hundred million. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did well money wise, um, and that's just theatrical. That's not counting any form of DVD sales or anything. So it it did well for itself. Definitely how, was a success financially. How do you how do you think this movie is is really remembered and perceived in uh, as uh, you know? now that it's been 10 years hmm um that's a that's an interesting question i don't know i i think it's perceived as a very strong thriller it's it it doesn't hold back it's it's clean it's crisp it moves quickly and uh even though it's it's uh almost two full hours it really does feel like it kind of speeds along, and um, it's it's just taut with very real characters that you buy into. Um, you know, I, I know some people who who felt it was a little too flashy as far as the camera moves through the you know the coffee pot handle and stuff like that, and through the floors. I I don't think that none of that ever bothered me. I always felt it was. It was a very interesting way, like we were talking about kind of that perspective of the house where we could kind of see whatever it is that was going on in the house, wherever we were. Um, but I think it'll always be remembered as um, a great midpoint transition for for Fincher to kind of move from the, you know, more genre films, I guess we could say, that he had been doing. Um, into more, I hate to you know sound trite with something like this, but adult films where it's you know adult dramatic stories. Right. You know, Benjamin Button was a much more dramatic adult type of story. Um, even yeah, adult you know, as in as in uh, uh, in contrast to adolescent. Yeah, it's not just kind of a genre picture. It's something that has a little more meat to it. It's mm-hmm. something that. You know, Panic Room is something teenagers would happily go sit through on a date. Same with Fight Club or The Game or or Seven. Um, it's kind of, I think, for Fincher, it feels kind of like the uh, a, a nice transition where he can he continued working with all of the technical tricks that he has while getting ready to move into much more um, adult stories. Meaning, you know, you're not going to find as many teenage kids on dates going to see Benjamin Button. That is the I mean, truth. You, you, yeah. He certainly has kind of gone back into that with Dragon Tattoo, I think. But even then, I think that has a, more of the adult qualities to it. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, sure, the uh, Dragon Tattoo has some has some thrill to it, uh, some, some of that sort of adrenaline uh, adrenaline-fueled uh, adolescent rush. Mm-hmm. But the balance, the overall balance of the film is a very kind of grown-up adult thriller. Yeah. It's not, a, you know, when you look at, at um, you know, Fight Club, it's it's that transition from all ego to id, you know? I mean, it's like that that transition from, you know, oh, God, I just, I just get such a rise out of punching people in the face, you yeah, know, right. to... Uh, you know, to Benjamin Button is a very different part of of Fincher's character. And it goes back to what we've talked about before, how he is he's choosing you can watch him sort of choose films that that address that 
uh, kind of a different side of himself. And that's a pretty powerful transition. And this, I think you're right. I think this is that, that sort of mile marker. Yeah. It's a perfect right in the middle uh, film for him Uh, at this point in his career. But so, um, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know, what they we've talked about technically what they've achieved uh, in terms of digital pre-visualization, um, we talked about the, you know, some of the CG and the, the practical uh, effects that come from building the set uh, in, in such a way. Um, we've was this film remembered for anything, uh, you know, anything else that you feel like uh, it, it served as a as kind of a waypoint in his technical career as a, as technical a director as Fincher is. I don't think, I I can't think of anything specific, but, um, the, uh, it, it just, I think, you know, he's somebody who's constantly using every tech technological tool that he has, um, for him when he's making his films. Um, regardless of what they happen to be the digital cameras weren't you know weren't around in time for this film to be made but you know they were for zodiac mm-hmm. but this film even then he was still using the previs and still finding ways like like I had talked about where he could almost deconstruct the house and then shoot it the way he wanted to and then reconstruct the house digitally i mean it's 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 pretty marvelous way to do it and on honestly i mean it's it's seamless like i would challenge anyone to watch this film and say okay that wall right there that's cg yeah that the, banister that's that's not the real banister right there that's that's completely added in later yeah you know i think the only the only reason that you would be able to pick those out is because of you know the context of history right i mean you just know that can the he was putting the camera in places that it could not go and mm-hmm. you you made a point of the the sort of cheekiness of the coffee handle the coffee mm-hmm. pot handle yeah. uh, but anytime the camera floats through two narrow banisters you know a banister you know spindles yeah. you know that that's that's going to be a cg um pull apart and but but you would not be able to tell by just looking at it if you didn't know this movie could could have passed as a movie that was made you know uh much later it was fascinating. Yeah. It's it's and I, I feel like I minimized that by just asking the question the way I did because I think that is what this film is remembered for. Yeah, um, you know the way he built this set and the way he stayed. I mean, this could have just as easily been a fascinating Hitchcock film. You know, it's like you. Oh yeah. You know it. It's. Uh, it, it really has that vibe to it, and that's I think why it why it holds up so well. I mean, we were. I, you know, we've seen this movie by before. My wife and I are sitting in bed and she is literally doing the, I'm, you know, like huddling under the covers because she is, so, <laughs> right. you know, she's so, uh, you know, affected by it. It's a, it's a great film. Yeah. Um, a couple things that I want to um, hit before we uh, yeah. turn, turn this off. The first one is a great quote that Jodie Foster says, talking about David Fincher and his process of filmmaking. Um, I'll just read this quote that she said. Uh, Because, you know, it's always brought up in every film that David Fincher releases how many shots that he gets of of any given scene. Like, instead of, you know, shooting five or six shots to get a scene right, he's shooting 30, 40, 
um, even that one shot in social network where they hit 99 takes of that shot. Um, so this is a quote about that. The number of takes was quite astounding. The number of shots was amazing. What is interesting is that there is virtually nothing on the cutting room floor. He's not somebody who overshoots so he can figure out what he wants later on. Every single one of these shots is shot specifically so it can be cut into a sequence. He does not overshoot. So it's an interesting combination of somebody who does as many takes as possible in order to get it right, but he's not taking a stab in the dark and just shooting a bunch of unusable footage. And that's what gives it the signature. That's the mistake, I think, that a lot of directors make when they finally come into a big-budget film is that they tend to get less and less prepared and procrastinate more and more, so they just shoot a lot of coverage because they figure somewhere down the line they'll have to make a choice. But what happens is you lose your signature, your voice. The film doesn't look like anything. It just looks like a lot of things thrown together. It's a really interesting quote about... David Fincher and other directors in general making these big budget films and how he really retains that signature that I think we've talked about in all of his films thus far in our conversations uh, and how they all are essentially David Fincher films. Mm, absolutely. It's, it, you get the feeling that he is a, a, a powerfully mechanical filmmaker. Yeah. He's just a, he, he really understands what, he, what it's going to take to create what is in his head. And at the same time, while being powerfully mechanical, um, one of the actors, I, I can't remember who it was in, in Benjamin Button, they comment how oftentimes if you have a really technical director like that, they'll often not be as good at or interested in or versatile with like the acting side of it. It's kind of like directors tend to be one or the other. And she said he is one of those directors who's versatile at both. He really knows how to do the technical stuff. But at the same time, he completely understands the acting side and knows how to work with his actors and does everything he can to get their performances just right. That's fascinating. That's so. fantastic. So, you know, this movie did not win uh, any of the, the big awards. It did win the uh, best, uh, let's see, uh, it was the ASCAP award from uh, for, the, the, uh, for the score by Howard Shore, which is a deep... Uh, dark, powerful score. Yeah, uh, it's haunting. It is a haunting score for this film. And and but but it it while it was nominated for some other kind of thriller awards, it didn't didn't get any big nods. No. Um, you know, no, it was it was it was not. I mean, it's not what you generally would consider an award film. No. You know. Yeah. It's it's a thriller that that um you know people go see just for for fun and i don't think they were planning on it kind of being there on the oscar stage or anything like that and yet it's a thriller with a lot more substance than you than you first uh, give it credit for so i definitely. it's it's definitely one that holds up and certainly a movie we like a yes. lot so one more thing yeah. or actually two more things go ahead <laughs> i got, promise i'll finish 45 up. seconds the first one jodie foster when she was making this found out that she was pregnant so she and, and and remember they shot this for six months. So by the time they got to the end of this film, she was in her third trimester, and they they calculated this film where she's just like, I have to get to the part where I get put the sweater on. I have to get to the part where I put the sweater on, um, because that was going to be the only real 
opportunity that she would finally have to try to hide her pregnant belly better. Wow. So they really had to shoot around her belly as much as possible. Um, and obviously the stunt scenes are done with her stunt double. But yeah, I mean, they got to a point where toward the end of the film, like all they could practically film of her was her face because the rest of her just looked so pregnant. That's too funny. Well, yeah. and that is actually interesting and maybe explains why this film was shot chronologically. It was shot in order. Right. Of, in script order, which is pretty rare. So all the in, for the inside shots of the house, they were shot uh, start to finish. Yes, right. Uh, what was your second point? Um, now I am I have another. I actually have another one. This is another bit of trivia that that I love uh, about oh, Kristen I, I Stewart. Remember, I remember what it is, but tell me. Go ahead. Well, it was Kristen Stewart that she yeah, tell me that she grew three inches over the course of that six months, right? And started out shorter than Jodie Foster and ended up quote towering over her, right? By the end of the film, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, well, they're lucky that her her facial features didn't start didn't change much. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was yours? Uh, this is just this is kind of in a sense unrelated to Panic Room, um, but it is related to David Kep. Um, as I said, he wrote this on spec, and uh, on the on the commentary on the DVD, which this DVD along with most Fincher films after this. Uh, actually, most of Fincher's films are packaged fantastically with a lot, lot of great commentary and making of stuff. But David Kep does an audio commentary about the script with William Goldman, a fantastic screenwriter in his own right. Um, and they're talking about writing and they're talking about the nature of spec scripts. And both of them are really, real hesitant to write spec scripts because um, as David Kep says, he he comes up with an idea and he starts writing it, but then he kind of runs out of steam and doesn't know where to go with it. And and William Goldman essentially he says the only spec script that he ever wrote was I, I think he said it was like Butch, Butch uh, Cassidy, Cassidy Sundance Kid. Yeah. Um, he said that it, he said it's essentially kind of considered the first spec script. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. Um, but it's funny that these two great writers who've written tons of amazing scripts between the two of them, both of them would much rather work on somebody else's idea or adapt something rather than write their own their own story. I just think it's an interesting look into the minds of great screenwriters who really need to have another idea given to them by someone else in order to turn it into something great. I think that's a that is an interesting thing that's worth thinking about, uh, you know. That's a whole other conversation, this idea of working on spec. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of keep a keep keep a finger on that uh, as we look at other films, uh, you know, and figure out the ones that we can kind of pinpoint those that are written on spec uh, and those that are work for hire. Well, not just things that are work, written uh, on spec or work for hire, but if it's original or based on something. Mm -hmm. Right. So obviously, da uh, David Kep probably had a much easier time writing Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull yeah. than he did uh, Panic Room. You know. So. I kind of hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I. What do we have? So next week we're gonna hit. Uh, we're gonna hit up Fight Club. Yeah. yeah. God, I can't wait. That. Ugh. I don't even know. Oh, okay. I love that film. I love that film I so much. I know. Well, they're all great films. It's hard. Well, they to are, but I really loved it. I have a deep relationship with this film. Fight well, Club. good. I uh, look forward to learning about that relationship. Oh, man. Can't wait. 
d- does this mean that you have a uh, an alter ego? And yes. Another, uh, you have your own Tyler Durden. He he may show up. I don't know. Wow, wow, that's that will make for an interesting episode. That's right. We live in a we live in a treehouse called the Bourgeois Playground. <laughs> we, sometimes we drink a tea. Wow, that's a very interesting Tyler Durden that you have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not well. <laughs> good night, Andy. Oh, good night. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.